This is David Rovix, and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55 a.m., Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do, and everything can change. Beyond Zero is a not-for-profit research and education organization. We design blueprints for a zero-emissions economy. As climate change becomes more apparent, leaders will use these well-researched plans that show a transition is possible from a 19th century fossil fuel-based economy with its climate-changing emissions to a zero-emissions 21st century. Check out our website for reports on zero-emissions energy, zero-emissions buildings and zero-emissions high-speed rail. Podcasts of our talks with a who's who of climate change action are all available at Beyond Zero Emissions. If you have some ideas for this show, contact us at radio team at beyondzeroemissions.org. Welcome to the Beyond Zero Emissions radio show listeners. Um, I'd like to invite you, before we start the show, to get your um, hats and coats on if you intend to go out to Melbourne University tonight. There's a Beyond Zero Emissions discussion group there, and it's at 6.30. So you just go to the chemistry building at Melbourne University. The focus will be on something called flow energy, which makes it easy for big business to bite the bullet and make the shift to renewable energy. And the speaker will be Liz Fletcher. The venue is the chemistry building on Massey Road and just go straight in from the Swanson Street tram stop at Melbourne University. So now we can start our show. I'd like to say salut Babette and hello to Kurt, who is with me in the studio doing the panel. Hi, Kurt. Hey, how's it going? Very good. Tonight's show is about the energy revolution from three different points of view in society. We've got Giles Parkinson, who is a journalist. He's also a very tr- trusted connector between the big business players because he organises conferences where they can all interact. Then we have Adam Bant, who is the federal in federal parliament, and he represents the Greens' energy and climate policy. And lastly, we'll have the Vegemite man, Lee Eubank, who's coming in to talk to Kurt about mobilising people like us, grassroots mobilising. And Kurt will get him to tell us about Friends of the Earth campaign called Act on Climate, which is in the lead up to the state election in November. But now I'm really happy to have Giles Parkinson with us on the line. Hello, Giles. Yeah, hi, how are you? Thanks um, for having me. I'm so happy that you can do this from time to time. Um, I'll just tell the audience, um, Giles is the founding editor of an online journal called Renew Economy, and we'll attach a link to that to our podcast because you should really, if you're interested in this sort of thing about energy policy and all the latest developments, it's actually quite exciting reading. He has a, a, a new <clears throat> list of articles every day. Before that, Giles was a business editor of the Financial Review, and he leads through, I think he's a thought leader because he organises conferences that allow people to network and um, the ideas flow freely and things really start gelling in those conferences. And I'm very much appreciating him appearing on the radio show. So, Giles, let's start with that large-scale solar and storage conference that you co-hosted recently. What were the most interesting stories that came up for you? Well, pretty much that, um, well, three things really. One is the falling cost of technologies. Um, 
solar clearly is, and, and wind for that matter, um, are, are falling in costs quite dramatically and are clearly now the lowest form of uh, new energy sources and probably even competing with most existing um, coal and gas plants too. If you, um, if you look at some of the cost of those plants in Australia, which are getting older and requiring more maintenance, the other exciting thing is the different forms of storage which are coming into play. We've got pumped hydro, but we've seen battery storage, both at household level and at utility scale level. And the combination of those costs between wind and solar storage are also falling as well. So already we're seeing solar and wind and um, battery storage competing with peaking gas generators. So those are the peaking gas generators which we normally switch on when there's really hot days when demand goes high and we all pay really, really high prices for it. Well, we probably won't need to do that anymore or, or over time once we get more of these battery storage installations put in place uh, because they're a cheaper option and they actually offer more competition and we've seen that with the Tesla big battery in South Australia that has reduced the costs of uh, some significant markets over there quite dramatically and it just shows what goes, what happens when you can actually introduce more competition into the market and that's the most exciting thing when you're li- looking at new developers with solar plants and wind plants and households and businesses who are all installing their own supply, their own generation, their own storage. Some of these things can act by themselves. Some of them, these things can be aggregated together and they all add competition to the market. So it's really exciting. You're seeing cleaner, faster, smarter technologies and cheaper technologies. And you're also seeing what um, I hope to be the democratization of the energy system, if you like. Mm. Mind you, there's a few hurdles to get over and that's the rules and regulations which have been designed by the incumbents and defended by the incumbents as yeah. we can see happen quite a lot. So yes, it's a... Uh, the battle isn't won, but Jesus looking good. <laughs> well, I'm glad to hear that because I'm just wondering if sometimes it's, it's very exciting for those people in all that, that industry to be get together because they're, they're the coming in thing, they're not the incumbent. But um, I wonder if there's any division within the renewable en- energy industry about how to react to the National Energy Guarantee. Look, there's a lot of discussion about that, what to do. Now, the National Energy Guarantee, this proposition of a emissions obligation, reliability obligation, um, it sounds nice in principle, but for two things. One, there is actually no reliability issues, so there's no need for an obligation at the moment. And two, the emissions target is so weak that um, basically that won't be an obligation either because it will already be met by what we're going to build to meet the renewable energy target by 2020. And this is the real concern. The National Energy Guarantee is effectively a rewriting of the National Electricity Rules or significant rewriting. It's been done in incredibly short time. They've basically got some rough ideas about what they want to do. They need to have it finished in four weeks. That is extraordinary. I mean, it normally takes these people one year or two years to insert a comma and take it out again (laughs) on some of the more oblique rules. And rewriting the whole thing in four weeks is just ridiculous. And I think one of the big concerns about the uh, for the industry is does this does this um, legislation do any harm, or does it end up being a roadblock? And I think at the very minimum, it must be seen to do no harm. In fact. You can't expect the National Energy Guarantee under the current emissions target from this government to do anything good at all because it just simply, the government doesn't have any ambitious policies whatsoever. If it does no harm, then maybe we can accept it. But then all it does is just put the onus or put the hope on a change of government 
that uh, you get labour coming in and would be able to actually change those targets um, and accelerate them. And at the moment, the current government is seeking to lock the weak targets in until 2030. Mm. Now, that is not bipartisanship. This is being sold as a bipartisan solution to the issue. It's not the case at all. We, we have a renewable energy target already, a mechanism, but there's no bipartisan bipartisanship about it. And unless we have a bipartisan agreement on the amount of emissions that we should be uh, reducing um, by 2030, then we're not going to have a bipartisan... It, it kind of means nothing. And, and, and some people think that you'd probably be better off without it yes. rather, than, um, rather than locking yourself into something, particularly if there's all these little booby traps around the place and it, it does end up locking in. It becomes... Whatever it's going to be, it's going to be highly complex and incredibly difficult to manage and you can kind of guess when things like that happen those create costs and those costs are eventually passed on to the consumer. Mm, yes and I'm sure the listeners hearts are sinking and just to tell you listeners we're talking to Giles Parkinson who as you see is very much with a finger on the pulse with the renewable energy industry he's a journalist but he's also a kind of a thought leader I think and um we're talking about the National Energy Guarantee, which is going to be decided in August when all the state uh, leaders get together at COAG. Um, Giles, the Business Council of Australia, uh, Jennifer Westacott, said that Labor's um, target of 49% renewables would wreck the economy. Well, I'm pretty sure that her members, such as the News Corp, the AI Group, Farmers Federation, BHP and Blue Scope, wrecked the carbon tax in uh, my memory <clears throat> but I'm wondering are people in the business council there's a lot of um, like AGL and Origin in there and there's a lot of other big industry aren't they some of them actually opting for contracts with wind and solar farms to reduce their costs I mean I wonder if they're divided as well the business council I was appalled by those comments from Jennifer Westacott. I can't believe that a chairman of a big business body now can come out and say such rubbish um, as that. I mean, it's just, um, it's staggering. Um, and I think that makes people like myself a little bit suspicious about the National Energy Guarantee. If you remember last week, Jennifer Westacott, who represents the Big Council of Australia, as well as the Australian Industry Group, the Minerals Council of Australia, the Farming Federation, as you mentioned, they're all flown into Canberra by Josh Frydenberg to try wing of the coalition, the Tony Abbotts and the Craig Kellys of the world, that they should actually get on board with the National Energy Guarantee and why it was a good idea. I'm a little bit suspicious when people like that think it's a good idea because, remember, these are the people that actually encouraged Tony Abbott to kill the carbon price, who campaigned against it, who tried to stop the... Um, who campaigned against the renewable energy target. And if they think the National Energy Guarantee is a good thing, then I'm going to be a little bit suspicious about it. And that's confirmed when she comes out with nonsensical questions, nonsensical statements like that. Yeah. We are starting to see now some of the big energy users. It's really quite exciting. Sanjeev Gupta, with his steelworks and... Um, Wyala, New South Wales and Victoria is turning to solar energy and storage because he says that is a way of reaping Australia's competitive advantage as a manufacturer because of this solar and storage that you're actually going to get cheap energy into the future. We're seeing lots of other companies going 100% renewables or as near as damn it. 
uh, companies such as Aurora, uh, which is part of the old Amcor packaging firm, uh, zinc, uh, Sun Metals, which is the zinc refiner up in North Queensland, Carlton United Breweries, Mars Australia, a whole bunch of them. What's really interesting about all these companies is that they're all foreign-owned, and that is really, really interesting. So you get a whole bunch of Australian households who understand the need and the opportunity to turn into solar. You get lots of Australian small businesses. But when it comes to big business... We're only getting the foreign-owned companies who are leading the show. Why is that? I don't know the answer to that. It's, I, I find it really curious. I think it's because they've heard about climate change. Anyway, look. Oh, well, <laughs> maybe they have, yes. Look, maybe, uh, maybe Australia's business leaders are so backward. I Everybody mean, I outside the bubble of Australia has heard about it, but not us. Listen, John Grimes represents the Smart Energy Council, and when the Coalition recently voted in support of Pauline Hanson's motion for a new coal-fired power station, he said, I think he must have blown a gasket, poor old John Grimes. He said, look, states voting for the National Energy Guarantee in August will be handing a blank cheque to the coal polluters. What is your message to the states who might be thinking about how to vote in August? Well, be very careful, I think, and I think some of them are. Um, unfortunately, the actual details of the policy get overshadowed by the actual politics of the situation. But it does only take one, um, it does only take one state or territory to vote against to discover the scheme. Um, so, I think that the, um, look, I think John, I think John Grimes is right. I think there's um, a lot of concerns, particularly after that vote last week where the coalition voted in support of a new coal-fired power station, particularly after the Nationals came up with a proposal to have a new $5 billion fund which would would, would, would finance the new coal-fired generator, which is just the most ridiculous thing I've ever heard. So if that's going to be part of it, then I think they should vote against it, and I think they probably will. I think there's more fundamental issues that they'll take into account, and um, those for people like the ACT... Um, and Victoria is to recognise that their efforts, they've both got quite ambitious targets. The ACT is going to be 100% renewable energy by 2020 and under the current scheme, what they do is additional to the national um, to, to, to the national target because they say the national target is quite weak we want to do better than that but we don't want our efforts be, to be an excuse for somebody else to do less. Now, one of the problems of the National Energy Guarantee as it's designed is that those ambitious targets from the likes of the ACT and Victoria become, they, they cannot be additional. Well, they could be, but they're not, they're not under the current legislation. You need, need to change the, 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 the way it's proposed. So what's proposed now is that the ACT and Victoria and Queensland, for that matter, would reach out and do more, but that just means that other states like WA and New South Wales can do less. Mm. And that actually applies to households and businesses. A lot of your listeners and people out there would be, would have put solar on their rooftops because they want to do more than what their retailer is doing. They want to do more than what their state is doing. They want to do more than what the country is doing as a whole and do their bit. And that is additional to what has been happening. But under the NEG, your retailer will be able to lay claim to the reduction in emissions from your rooftop solar panel. So even though they're giving you a pretty lousy feed-in tariff, they're going to claim your emissions and they're going to use that as part of their obligations. So that means that they can do less um, with the other parts of oh. their um, thing. And I think, I think that's an outrage. Uh, Giles, I've just got time for one very quick answer. Um, Audrey Zebelman, who is the head of the Australian Energy Market, <clears throat> she told you in an interview that Australia will be a world leader in the transition to a smarter and cheaper renewables-based grid. And trying to resist it 
is like trying to stop the internet. I'd just love to interview Audrey Zebelman myself one day, but how can we keep this front of mind, especially in the coming series of elections that we're likely to have, when the resistors like Tony Abbott and the Monash Forum will be out in force? Look, they can't stop technology change, and I think that's the point that Audrey Zieberman is trying to make. Um, technology is changing, and like the transition from the horse and cart to the car, from analog to digital, from sticks like phones to mobile phones, you're not going to be able to stop it. What they can do, though, is probably make it slower than it needs to be at the time when we actually need to go faster. And they can probably make it more expensive just by putting in all these ridiculous rules and making extra payments for the existing coal generators. And I think that's the message that she's putting out there, that, look, we're not going to stop this, so let's just try and manage this transition properly. And, um, you know, I, I, I sympathise with the people in those regulatory bodies. Not all our regulators um, have been as progressive as Audrey, and we should be very thankful that she is there, um, because some of them have been pretty slow, and some of the rule changes that we've needed to be in place for the last five or six years have not been in place because people that. But, but look, that's her message, and, and I think it's a message to, to, for, for listeners to take comfort with, that yes, the technology is going to win out over the end, it will happen. But for goodness sake, this is a wonderful opportunity for Australia to lead the world to actually accelerate the progress and it will be a cheaper, cleaner, more efficient and smarter, faster, more reliable grid if we go down that way, rather than this barking mad idea of going back towards coal-fired generators and keeping them operating for longer. It's just ridiculous. Yeah. And don't vote for people who will be standing in the way. So, thank yeah. you, <laughs> thank you, Giles. So that was Giles Parkinson, editor of Renew Economy. You can subscribe to it, listeners. It's free and it's a daily newsletter on this sort of thing, which it will keep you very well informed. So, thank you, Giles. Thank you. You're listening to Three C R Radio. Cyclones is pretty grim. Do you ever feel like just switching off? Well, don't. Switch on to Beyond Zero Emissions Community Radio Show every Monday at 5pm on 3CR and beat the doom and gloom to find out the latest actions and research in your community. VZE Radio at 5pm on Monday. Turn the tide, literally. Adam Bant represents the seat of Melbourne in the Federal Parliament. Before that, he was an industrial relations lawyer and he's the energy and climate spokesman now for the Greens. So thanks, Adam, for appearing on this show. Pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, look, from your press releases, I get the impression that being in Parliament makes your blood boil. What's it like? Well, when you walk into Parliament and the government throws around lumps of coal as a bit of of a stunt um, and the Treasurer says it's coal, don't be scared of it, then you, I mean, to say you shake your head would be an understatement. Climate change is really the main reason that I'm in politics. It's what prompted me to quit my job and start running for election a few years ago and to see these dinosaurs is a kind word for them but, um, these coal huggers who are essentially intent on destroying the planet sit there and uh, joke about something as serious as climate change it does make my blood boil at some times 
Well, what allies do you have in at the federal level, for example, for a national plan to phase out the coal-fired power stations? We had a, a doctor at Port Augusta telling us that they really got the state-of-the-art scheme there to transition Port Augusta, and if only the nation would take up their blueprint, it would be fine. And look, do you have allies that you can talk about, you know, future policy like that? Yeah, look, we do, we do need a national plan to get away from coal. We need to... Uh, close the equivalent of one Hazelwood coal-fired power station a year between now and 2030 if we're to have uh, any meaningful chance of meeting the Paris targets of staying um, well below 2 degrees and ideally at 1.5 and some would say 1.5 is even a stretch at the moment but if we're to stay true to what we signed up to in Paris that's the scale of the task that's needed so we need a national plan to replace coal with clean energy some people get that um, for a while there we almost got the Labor Party to agree with us. They, for, for a small moment there, they were saying, yes, let's have a national plan for the orderly retirement of um, coal-fired power stations. And then they got spooked when the political, uh, when Turnbull and co turned climate change into a political issue again, and instead of standing up to them, they caved in. So we've got, I don't see a lot of allies in Labor at the moment, sadly, for such a plan. But if you look around the country, you've got places like in Indi, um, that's uh, re represented by the independent Cathy McGowan. That's uh, a nominally conservative electorate and they've got towns there that are moving on to 100% renewable energy and increasingly a number of farmers stepping up the National Farmers Federation has said recently look we're sick of this being treated as a political football and it's now beyond doubt for many of us on the land watching the climate changing that it's not just normal variability it's something more than that it just hasn't percolated through to the top levels of the old parties yet sadly. I'm very dismayed that there aren't committees on this actually working towards it in Parliament. Well, we had one for a while. We had a, a, an inquiry looking at um, mechanisms for the retirement of coal-fired power stations and transitioning the electricity sector. And as I say, we had some movement from some Labor Party people on that committee, uh, but then as soon as uh, it got turned into a fight about electricity bills, they snapped back into line and refused to um, criticise coal-fired power. Maybe um, we're seeing movement from them again, um, I don't know, but it all what they seem to be a bit sort of weather vainish on this question of coal. Mm. Uh, but then you look around the world and you look in, uh, you look at Germany, where there's now a coalition government between the equivalent of the Labour and Liberal parties, a grand coalition they call it, and as part of their coalition agreement, they've agreed to form um, a, a commission, an inquiry, a committee that will look at how to phase out coal in Germany. Mm. And this is the equivalent of the Labour Party and the Liberal Party party doing this and uh, you, you then come back to Australia and look at what's happening here and uh, it really is heartbreaking. Yeah well still on the idea of the retirement plan there's a lot of job insecurity in coal communities and I'd like to know what does your experience in industrial law show you about the labour laws that we need to handle this climate emergency. I've spoken to people in Port Augusta, Latrobe Valley, Hunter Valley, and really it's all messy and we need to, a clear vision of how it would work. Look, we spent last year on a Beyond Coal tour and it was Greens from state and federal level going to as many of the coal-fired power station communities around the country as we could, going into the communities and saying, look, we need the plan to transition out of coal, but um, we, are, we also understand that 
It's not. It's you as the workers and communities that have depended on it up till now and have kept our lights on and indeed still keep our lights on. Uh, you're the ones we should be honouring and working with and supporting. And it's certainly uh, we, it's not it's not good enough to let the blame all fall on people who work in coal-fired power station communities. And we were saying that we should have a very simple approach. We should um, recognise that these communities often have a lot of electricity transmission infrastructure assets. All the power lines go into and out of those communities. So we should start by ha- looking at whether we can build new renewable energy um, or battery storage or pumped hydro storage in these communities to attach into the existing electricity grid. And maybe some of these communities, like the Latrobe Valley, might not be the 100% best place to put new wind farms, but if it if, you, if it's 80% good enough, then that's surely much better than having people um, join the unemployment queue or having uh, having massive economic disruption there. So let's look at that. If that can't work, then let's get some new industry and infrastructure into those areas and so and start building them up now so that when we turn the next coal-fired power station off in a couple of years' time, there's new industries for those people to move into. And if that even doesn't work, then the fallback is look at proper retraining and reskilling for people in the region. But that needs uh, a federal authority to grab the issue by the scruff of the neck and to say we need to put serious money into a transition plan and start the planning now so that we don't see a repeat of Hazelwood where people get um, caught at short notice and there's not the secure jobs for them to move into. Mm. In labour law, though, what could be done? Well, if we establish a national authority that's in charge of not only the energy planning and the electricity planning, i.e. which renewable stations are going to go where, but is also charged with the transition from a worker's point of view, then we can begin the process of sitting down with unions, sitting down with employers locally, sitting down with government, saying, right, how do we build up new industry in this area? And we might not even need to change the laws, even though we need to change the laws in a number of other respects, but if, with a bit of planning, we could actually start start doing some of that work now. They did it in Newcastle in transitioning out of steel, and there was a lot of effort put into a proper transition plan, and we can start, and some might say it had mixed success, but they certainly people gave it a red-hot go, and I think we could do the same nationally. One thing I do think needs to change in labour law is that people should be entitled to start bargaining about issues relating to climate change. We should be treating climate change and the transition as a workplace issue so that when people start to want to make demands of their own employers but also start to talk about job security um, as they transition, as industries transition, that should increasingly that should uh, be put up in lights as, a law, as an issue that people are entitled by law to bargain about. Right. Well, you've called for a re-regulation of electricity prices as well and you said that an essential service service like that is being treated like a stock market, you know, for profit before public interest. And I'd like to know what are you thinking of, especially as uh, regulations around renewables, as we have more renewables feeding into the grid, it may again become messy. And what regulations would you like to see? Well, we need to do a couple of things. One is we need to transition to renewables very, very quickly. And we want to see, uh, as the Greens, that done by 2030, and we think we can do that by 2030. It would be a very big task, but it would be a job um, boon to move quickly to renewables. There would be an enormous amount of construction uh, and maintenance and power generation that would be needed, so it would be a very jobs-rich program. But firstly, we want to see the switch to renewables. Secondly, we actually need to start electrifying a lot of areas 
that currently aren't electrified. So in industry, for example, a lot of gas is used at times when electricity could be substituted. So gas is often used for um, creating steam, for example, whereas you could use electric heaters to do some of that work. But there's no incentive or pull to do that. But we also need to do things like electrify transport, um, getting electric buses, cars, trains. We've got many trains, obviously, but not, not completely. But electrifying our transport fleet, for example, that's actually going to require us to generate more electricity than we're doing now. So again, like you think about the number of jobs that are going to be involved in that. We then need a mechanism to pull renewables into the system in an orderly way. We're really worried that the renewable energy target's about to fall off a cliff and nothing's there to uh, take its place. We need a mechanism to pull coal out and we think the best thing to do is to put that in law, uh, just have a staged uh, replacement schedule for all the coal-fired power stations. But while we do all of this, we've got to make sure that we leave no one behind um, and that we bring down power bills and that we're doing this for the public good rather than for profit. And so um, a couple of things we'd like to do is one is start to re-regulate electricity prices because um, in some states they do it, in the ACT in Tasmania they do it, and they've got the cheapest electricity in the country. And what we're seeing at the moment is power bills going up and up and up, and it's because of excessive profiteering, but people are blaming um, renewables when it's got nothing to do with renewables. Renewables are actually helping bring down the price, but because there's this excessive profiteering and we've treated this public good like a stock market, bills are going up, and when bills go up, people start to feel more sceptical about renewables, and that's because the, the right wing fans the flames and say, says it's all the fault of renewables. So while we make this transition, let's regulate power prices so that everyone's bills come down because renewables are ultimately cheaper, um, but we make the switch over from coal to renewables as we're doing it. Another area that people are sceptical about is the Emissions Reduction Fund, and apparently I think over $2 billion has been spent on it, and our emissions are still going up, and... I'm wondering what your policy or what you would like to see as policy for the National Emissions Reduction Fund, especially regarding the land sector, forests and agriculture. The point that you've made about pollution going up is a critical one, and I think it's worth just remembering this. Pollution started falling when we had a price on pollution, that, which we secured when the Greens were in balance of power in 2010. The country's pollution actually started falling. And now, since it's been repealed, it is going up again. And at a time when, you know, we should be um, arguing about how quickly we're cutting our pollution, to have pollution going up is unforgivable. And part of the reason for that is that we've got these wasteful policies like the Emissions Reduction Fund or Tony Abbott's Direct Action Scheme. And if you think about it, it's completely wrong-headed. It's taking public money and using it to fund so-called pollution reduction programs when, in fact, the carbon price worked the other way around. It was saying to big polluters, you've now got to pay for the cost of your mm -hmm. pollution and we'll use some of your money to give to low-income owners. So the, the price on pollution had money coming from the big polluters to the public. The Emissions Reduction Fund, or Direct Action, has money going the other way from the public effectively over to the big polluters. And so why are we paying for um, people to reduce 
pollution when we should be asking for the polluters to pay. And um, not only that, but the uh, the scheme is wasteful and it's not, as you say, pollution is going up, so it's clearly not working. The mechanism that we had in place before that was working was one was a comprehensive scheme that included covering the agriculture sector. When we had a price on pollution that covered a number of sectors and within agriculture we had the carbon farming initiative which assisted um, farmers to do uh, in doing work to minimise use of land clearing and to get incentives for, for making sure that uh, their farming practices encouraged uh, a cut in pollution. They were able to use the credits they gained through that by interacting with the remainder of the scheme. Um, we had a fund set aside to allow businesses, including farms, to transition and cut their pollution, and that was working. And so we had abattoirs, for example. One abattoir managed to reduce its power bill down to near zero by investing in cogeneration using funds that they got from the federal government to reorder their industrial and their farming practices and it worked and that's the blueprint we think for um, doing it again. Right, well, we have only one more minute, Adam, and uh, we've got some elections on the horizon. I don't really want you to do an election speech just yet, but a lot of people have lost faith in government getting a really powerful climate policy, the ones I speak to, and I'd like to know what will the Greens and climate-conscious other people in Parliament do to lead the way? What vision, in a minute, can you give us? Look, if we ignore climate change, it's an existential risk. If we agree that we're going to challenge it urgently, it is a massive opportunity for us, or massive opportunity for us to live better lives, to stop living lives that are just about making profit for other people, but instead start saying, what does it mean to have a good life for myself and my grandkids? And we'll create uh, a heck of a lot of jobs in the process, and we'll create an enormous amount of social wealth, because people will be proud to know that they're working on projects that are a about making the quality of life better for everyone. And look, the election is going to be very close whenever it is, and Greens may end up in the balance of power again, like we did back in um, 2010. The government's only got a one-seat majority, and if we have me and hopefully another Greens or two in the House of Representatives, we could be in a position to say, look, we'll sit down with you and we'll help you form government, but you've got to start taking climate change seriously. And that, I think, would give people a lot of hope. Thank you very much. So we've been listening to Adam Band, who uh, represents the Greens in the Federal Parliament. This is James Henry here, and you're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, and digital streaming on 3cr.org.au. We are now joined in the studio with writer and activist Lee Eubank and community campaigner Anna Langford. Lee and Anna are coordinating the Friends of the Earth Act on Climate Campaign, which focuses on grassroots action, which is what we're all about here at Beyond Zero Emissions. They have been, uh, Lee has been involved in other campaigns, including Yes to Renewables, and Anna has been involved in Quit Coal. They are at the coalface of where community activism meets politics and have witnessed public and political perception to climate change shift and warp over the years. Lee, I'll start with you. Is climate change getting the attention it deserves in the upcoming Victorian state election? Uh, look, it's, it's really good to be here. Um, so thank you so much, Beyond Zero Emissions. 
And unfortunately, I don't have a good uh, a good response to this question today. Um, mm-hmm. I think what we have seen is a lot of fear mongering from Matthew Guy and the opposition around the issue of crime. And you know, despite the Daniel Andrews government getting off on a really positive foot in 2017 mm-hmm. with some really good climate change outcomes. In 2018, we've seen a few bad outcomes and, you know, we're only five months out from polling day in Victoria and there isn't really a significant push for for positive climate change policies. And, you know, the only people that are really talking about climate change at this point are the Greens. So it is is a a, a pretty desperate state of affairs at the moment in Victoria. Right. I'd like to talk about your Act on Climate campaign because that... that carries on from that really, uh, really well. Anna, your most recent action was taking a community statement to Premier Daniel Andrews, uh, Matthew Guy and the Greens, Samantha Ratnam. What did the statement say and what sort of reaction did you get? Um, So the statement was a statement from the community about why Victorians are concerned about climate change, um, which was across the whole spectrum from rural communities to people in the city and all the different climate impacts that people are already experiencing and um, basically just a demand for serious action on it. I wasn't actually there on the day that we Mm -hmm. handed that in, so um, Lee could probably tell you about the reaction from the politicians on that. Great. Yeah, actually, it was a really interesting day. So this was um, June June fifth, World Environment Day, yep. and we we did the handover down on the steps of Parliament to Alan Sandel, the Greens member for Melbourne, right. and we also had ministers D'Ambrosio um, and Martin Foley. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we did in a very intentional way, we had um, you know a group of a dozen community members with us. And each person was asked to share, you know, what is the climate change impact that concerns them the most? Right. And I can tell you that um, Minister D'Ambrosio was visibly moved by hearing that testimony. We did have um, one, of, one of the community members with us, Kate Wacho. Um, she works with, you know, in the dis- disabled um, care sector. Yeah. And, yeah, particularly concerns around... Um, disadvantaged people in our community and how they are going to deal with and feel the brunt of climate impacts. That was very, very powerful stuff. So um, obviously we are keeping an eye on all of the political parties at this point. Um, Our statement, it did ask all of the MPs to take the document to the party leaders Mm -hmm. and to get a response. So, you know, we will be checking in shortly with um, the Greens, Labor and Liberal parties to ask them, you know, whether they're whether their respective leaders have actually read the document and whether they're going to give us the answers that we need. Um, Because given that we are facing a climate emergency, you know, heading to an election, we do need to see parties putting policies forward. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I'm. I'm really interested about the work that, that you guys are doing, particularly as a as a bridge between the community and politicians. So I guess, but we do talk about public opinion, um, but I don't think it captures really how diverse and fragmented the range of voices in a state like Victoria are, uh, where you have inner city Melbourne, which has a vastly different attitude to places like the Latrobe Valley, where coal is historically meant jobs and electricity. 
can be a, counterproductive to talk down to different communities uh, and to have people in the city telling people from the country that coal is bad. How do you guys deal with that challenge? Anna, Anna? Do, do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I guess Friends of the Earth's approach has always been getting out there to meet communities yeah. and talk to them about the impacts that they're seeing because obviously from our office in Collingwood, we can't understand what rural communities all across Victoria yeah. are experiencing. And so with all of our campaigns, really, from the campaign to ban fracking to the campaign for a renewable energy target that involved travelling um, all over Victoria to meet different people, hear their stories and really understand why it would be important to them to get the outcomes that we were fighting for. And that was why we were so successful because we listened to communities, we amplified their voices and yeah, it was, it was a really grassroots method, um, that we were working with. Is there one particular segment from the community that you were really surprised and impressed by their their particular stance on on action on climate change? Well, I guess um, farmers would be one group um, that we've connected a lot with over um, both the renewable energy target campaign and the ban on fracking. Um, And I guess what we did was we connected with them over the issues that were closest to home for them. So them wanting to protect their land, their water, their yeah. um, their food, their livestock, all of that, because climate change for a lot of people, including in the city, can seem like such a far-off issue. Yeah. Um, you know, it can just seem like the polar ice caps melting and yeah. um, that's often all you see. So when you talk about the really local climate impacts that people are already noticing, then you actually get a lot of stories and you see that people are tuned into this sort of thing, but just not in sort of the really broad, grandiose way that it can sometimes be talked about, which can make it seem really distant. Yeah, okay. Um, Lee, the, the dominant narrative we have in Australia is that the majority of Australians want action on climate change. Mm. But lobby groups like the Minerals Council undermine through marketing and a monopoly of access to politicians. Mm. Have you found it harder to get a hearing from politicians? You know, um, I must say, in Victoria, we do have um, we do have a good situation. Um, you know, Minister Lily D'Ambrosio, you know, has has a good relationship with us and will hear the community's perspective. And I think um, the action that we did recently on World Environment Day is testament to the power of the community voice. Mm. So, you know, we managed to, to have Alan Sandel from the Greens, Ministers D'Ambrosio and Foley, and also the Liberal Party's Shadow Ministers for Environment and Energy. Mm. And, you know, so across the board, we are engaging. Um, but, the, you know, the challenge remains whether those politicians can can kind of shepherd through good policy through their respective party rooms. And, you know, unless there's a vocal, um, you know, strong community voice outside the halls of parliament demanding action and, you know, highlighting the climate change impacts that concern us all, mm. you know, whether it's sea level rise or whether it's, you know, more frequent heat waves or bushfires, mm. without that voice it is hard to get you know, the, the kind of, uh, you know, 
attention that we'd like to see on the issue from members of parliament. Great, great. I guess if we take America as an example, we see the, the battle lines drawn where we have truth and science on one side and kind of alt facts on the other. I think the media plays a giant role uh, as the arbiter of, of truth. Um, we suffer in Australia from a media landscape that is either struggling to survive or happy to trade in misinformation. How much of your work as activists is is trying to create and spoke act, provoke action, and how much mm. of it is just kind of setting the record straight, trying to establish what's factually true? Yeah, look, in my experience, and Anna can probably comment on her experience after this, but mm. um, look, you know, we at Friends of the Earth over the last five years, we waged a campaign for a Victorian renewable energy target. Yep. And, you know, it was probably 10,000 tweets and, you know, a couple of thousand Facebook posts, you know, hundreds of meetings and, you know, maybe one age story. But, um, we still won the campaign yeah. despite limited attention from the mainstream press. And obviously, 3CR is a very important channel for us to, to you know, for the grassroots to communicate, you know, the, the big campaigns that we're waging. Um, and I think it did come to a surprise to the press gallery, you know, just as just as um, Brexit or the Trump mm. um presidency became as a surprise to the media kind of elite you know when the vret was announced you know there yeah. was this kind of a little bit of puzzlement from from some quarters yeah. of the media um but you know we're just doing good old-fashioned grassroots work yeah. we keep our eye on the on the outcome and yeah we just work very diligently and chip away at things until it arrives so yeah that's great that's great um so i i guess the you are working on Act on Climate, the Act on Climate campaign. Um, what sort of grass, grassroots work do you do? How much of it is face to face? How much of it is, is social media? What kind of work do you do there, Anna? It's a real mix of both. I think that um, just on your question before, social media mm. is really great because it allows us to tell our own story. And we can broadcast ourselves. We don't have to wait to get through the channels of mass media. Um, and so we can amplify a lot of voices in that way. But obviously, another huge part of it is face-to-face. -face. So we go out as part of Act on Climate and meet rural communities across Victoria and, yeah, talk to them about what climate impact they're seeing and what solutions locally they've either they're either already working on or they want to happen and then we help them to achieve those outcomes so a lot of driving <laughs> involved but um yeah it's it's definitely so worth it once we get out there and meet all these people yeah. who we just wouldn't be able to connect with otherwise yeah that's great um and so another another big uh, win that you guys had was um, for the the legislation of uh, the Victorian Climate Change Act being passed. Uh, can you just take us through that really quickly? Yeah, that was um, a big win for us last year, just when we'd started, actually. I think we'd been going as a campaign for about five weeks when this act was legislated in Parliament. And what it means is that every government department now has to take climate change into account with the planning that they do. And it also means that the government has to set emissions reduction targets up until 2050, when the goal is for Victoria to have zero net emissions. 
So it's um, very broad reaching and it's it's going to have a lot of impact. But obviously we have a lot more work to do there. Great. Um, so we here at 3CR, we have a lot, um, a lot of people that are involved in the community and um, what, what can they do to help out the uh, Act on Climate uh, campaign? Sure. Um, well, there's several things that people can do. Um, f- firstly, you know, we're, we're always about getting off Facebook and having more FaceTime. Um, so every Monday night there is a meeting at Friends of the Earth um, 312 Colling- um, Smith Street in Collingwood and you know this is community members getting together, strategizing, um, coming up with actions that are going to push the campaign forward um, and you know we have an open door policy mm-hmm. so if anyone, if any of the listeners out there today are keen to come along um, we would welcome you. Um, secondly um, coming up on Saturday the 21st of July Friends of the Earth, we're holding our our inaugural um, community action Skillshare day. Great. Um, so it's called Get Shit Done, um, <laughs> and we're really excited about it. So if people are keen, um, you know, check out the Friends of the Earth Melbourne Facebook page or our website, and you will find the details there. And lastly, we do have an online petition. So obviously, you know, we've, we're not waiting for the politicians to deliver a vision for a, a sustainable Victoria. We're coming out and articulating the type of Victoria that we would like to see. So people are welcome to sign on to that vision and they can do so online. So feel free to check out melbournefoe.org.au forward slash Victoria 2018 melbournefoe.org.au forward slash Victoria 2018. Great. Great. I'll I'll definitely be checking that out. Thank you so much for coming in, Lee and Anna. My pleasure. Thanks for having us. Best of luck. This is James Henry here, and you're listening to 3CR, 8.55am, and digital streaming on 3cr.org.au.
sudden uh, fade out. Um, that made, reminded me of the Circus Oz listeners. They have a show down in the Botanical Gardens. I heard it on the radio, and uh, it's something weird, as you'd expect from Circus Oz, but it's vaguely related to climate change or the end of the world or something like that. And if you love the Circus Oz, just to let you know they're in town. Um, I would like to thank Kurt for doing a heroic job on the panel. Andy was not with us tonight, but he usually is there just keeping it all running. But Kurt jumped in and got it going, and we um, hope you heard the whole hour. And thank you to Lee Eubank, Anna Langford, Giles Parkinson, and Adam Band, who kindly gave their time. And really, these are top people. You see how hard they work, all of them, really full on about climate action from every angle and um, hope we're going to you know win the battle because there are the dinosaurs and troglodytes in the background also marshalling their forces um, you know especially if there's an in when there's an election on the horizon but meanwhile listeners I'd like to thank half my list of donors we made well over our target for the Beyond Zero Emissions show for 3CR's Radiothon. And so I'm going to thank half the list today and half the list next week. So really many thanks to all these people who answered the call and realised that, um, as Lee Eubank just said, this community radio um, independent voice is so important. So thank you to Ewan Sola, John van der Carlen, Ian Ashley, Marie Belcredi, Rebecca Bishop, Margot Bush, William Chandler, Paul Cooper, Peter Court, Kate Croc, Anthony Daniele, Brendan Doyle, Barbara Dutton, John Dwyer, Tracy Esler, Tom Evans, Edward Ford, Juliet Fox, Barbara Fraser, John Gare, Bronwyn Gould, Matt Grantham, Teresa Greemer, Ken Hager, Trish Howes, and Bronwyn James, Leslie James, Anne Jacques, John Kent, Jerry Langford and Stephen Langford, who, as you can guess, are related to me. Uh-huh. And very importantly, John Stevenson, in memory of his wife, who was our dearest friend, Anna Stevenson, who died a few years ago, but she was a faithful listener in her terminal years. She really was very ill and she would listen to our program. We'd listen to it together and she'd comment and she was a doctor. So she really understood about science and she just thought it was really important. So John gives us a very generous donation every year in memory of his wife, Anna Stevenson. So thank you to those people. All of you, that's half the list. We're down to L, and I'll do the rest of the list next week. We made, I think, up to about $5,000. We we only needed $4,000 for our target, but I'm just really pleased that we got over that because the station needs it, and there's lots of programs here who don't have, um, you know, a a lot of friends. They have a small niche audience, and we, I think, have a bigger audience, so we've got this money, and I'm really pleased that we got it. So thanks very much, Kurt. Um, have you got anything to tell us? I'm, g- I'm going to call you next week in Morwell. Can you tell us a little bit about your plan going down there? No, no worries. So I will be heading down to the uh, the Latrobe Valley, which is um, it, it's a really interesting area that's they they used to provide 96% of the electricity for for oh. Victoria and they've got these huge brown coal mines which are right next to these big some of some of the 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 most polluting uh power stations in 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 all of Australia in all the southern hemisphere actually uh, so I'll be going down there to w- see some really exciting community projects um that are that are underway turning these people they're really into 
electricity and the production of electricity and it's 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 interesting to watch that enthusiasm pivot mm. from coal to naturally find mm. a home uh, with renewables so I'll be heading down there for that and um, I'm hoping that I can talk to you uh, on the phone yeah, next well, week so we'll call Kurt briefly we're having a program next week on philanthropy and uh personal change, you know, personal change for climate action, and then we'll briefly talk to Kurt, who'll give us a heads up on the interviews that he'll be doing down there that we'll hear then on the 30th of July. So just before we go, listeners, another reminder, if, you've got, if you're in Carlton or near the Melbourne University, please go up there for the discussion group tonight. It's in the chemistry building, and it's with a group called Flow. It's about putting renewable energy into action. So thank you very much for listening, and thank you for donating to 3CR. We'll see you next Monday, 5 p.m. Good night.